Thank you very much for coming, ladies and gentlemen. And I'd like to extend a warm welcome to those of you watching online, as well as those of you in the room and those of you in the overflow room downstairs. Um, before I introduce Nick, I'd just like to do a little bit of housekeeping. If you're going to tweet um, or uh, other, you know, post on Facebook, could you make sure your devices are on silent, please? Um, there will be plenty of time for questions and answers at the end. Um, and uh, before we start, I'd just like to flag up a couple of other events we've got coming up. Um, this time next week, we're holding a debate with the Department of Politics on the future of the UK post-Scottish referendum. So please do book online for that if you're interested. We have the Chancellor of the University coming the week after. Um, and this Thursday sees the start of our Michaelmas term seminar series, and it's on health in the 21st century. And we have Professor Piot, Peter Piot, who is the co-discoverer of the Ebola virus and he's going to be talking about the implications for Africa and beyond. So please do go onto our website and have a look at what's coming up and sign up for more events. Um, so that leads me on to introduce today's speaker. Professor Nick Bostrom has been with the Oxford Martin School for a long time now. Um, he's director of the Impacts of Future Technology program here and he's also the director of the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm sure most of you are here because you've come across his latest book, Superintelligence. It's in the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction. And we also saw today on Twitter that Elon Musk has recommended it as one of his top nine books to read. So I think that's as much of an introduction as we need. And I'll hand over to Nick. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, So this is the book there, uh, buy, buy it if, if you haven't already, buy, buy several copies, uh, give it to your friends, lest you live in a little bubble of enlightenment with nobody to talk to. Um, I'm not going to try to summarize um, the book today, but I want to give some of the background um, where this kind of thinking is coming from. Um, so with the uh, Future of Humanity Institute and my earlier work, I'm interested in trying to figure out the, the, the broader strategic picture that we're operating in. Um, the kinds of questions you would want to know the answer to if you wanted to know how you could do the most good in the world. And so if we zoom out um, and look at uh, our current situation as a species from a very abstract point of view, we can maybe think in two dimensions, time on one and then on the other, some measure of technological advancement. And there is some uh, band of level of technological advancement and economic productive capability that constitute what we now think of as the human condition, the modern human condition. Um, it's worth reflecting that this band is uh, a narrow uh, segment of, of the possible conditions that could obtain. And uh, clearly from an evolutionary uh, point of view, the, the human species is a novelty in the scheme of things. But even if we zoom in and just look at things on a historical timescale, uh, the idea that you wake up in the morning with an alarm clock and then commute to, to an office where you sit in front of a screen all day, um, that, that this is the, the kind of uh, the lives that we're living is a huge anomaly on historical timescales. Uh, for most of human history, we uh, were in something approaching a Malthusian condition. And only in the last few hundred years, we've broken out of that. Uh, in, 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 in spatial terms as well, uh, the, the environment that we are familiar with um, this little thin crust on the surface of, of one uh, planet is hugely anomalous in, in the larger scheme of things. Most is just ultra-high vacuum. Uh, and, and yet we tend to think that this is the normal way for things to be, and that if one 
wants to postulate that things could change radically, one faces an extraordinary burden of proof, because it would be an extraordinary hypothesis to think that the human condition could fundamentally change. But um, with this kind of picture, it's clear that the longer the timescale we're considering, the, the, the greater the probability that we will break out of it in one direction or another. And there are two ways that could go. So one possibility is to break out of it in the downwards direction. Uh, in population biology, there is this concept of a minimum viable population size. This is the idea that when you have too few surviving individuals, uh, you get insufficient genetic diversity, you're too vulnerable to temporary shocks, and, and you go extinct. Um, and, and similarly, with too uh, low a level of uh, capability, we couldn't uh, maintain uh, human life, and, and we would then uh, reach this um, uh, attractor state of extinction. Once you're extinct, you tend to stay extinct. So it's a stable state. You can remain there uh, indefinitely. Um, I think there's another uh, attractor state in, in this picture, which is one we could reach if we break out in the upwards direction. And the reason for thinking that there is a kind of attractor there is to this thought that once you have a technologically mature civilization, a civilization that has developed all the technologies that, that are physically uh, possible and, and important, uh, then after that there might be no new, no, no new risks from technology that could threaten you and also you will have at that point um, initiated a cosmic colonization process where the species is spreading from solar system to solar system and galaxy to galaxy and, and that kind of intergalactic empire is just a lot harder to see how anything would knock that out and it might just continue to expand indefinitely until uh, in the fullness of time uh, it becomes impossible to reach any further material resources because of the uh, cosmological expansion. So there is this big uh, finite but large bubble of resources that could in principle be accessed from a civilization starting from our current spatial temporal locations. Things that are beyond that because the universe is expanding are receding uh, from us faster than the speed of light. So by the time we had sort of reached there uh, they would have slid further away. And that that big bubble constitutes uh, what I term humanity's cosmic endowment. It's the, it's the resources we could in principle access if, if, if things go well and then transform into some kind of value structure like flourishing civilizations with, with minds living for billions of years, the size of planets, thinking thoughts and having feelings that, that are literally beyond our imagination. Um, but that too looks like an attractive state. If you break out there, you might be on a track and, and it, you might with high probability end up uh, at, at this cosmic endowment. And so from this picture, um, the concept of an existential risk becomes important. An existential risk is one that could threaten to cause the extinction of Earth-originating intelligent life or uh, to permanently and drastically destroy our potential for desirable further development. Uh, in other words, it's like a risk that could threaten our entire future. So it's distinct from all the other ways in which things uh, can and do go wrong. So throughout history there have been many catastrophes and calamities from wars and earthquakes and plagues. But, but these have been merely uh, ripples on the great pond of life. They haven't perhaps made any significant difference to the long-term prospects of our species. But an existential risk is qualitatively different. And there will only ever have been either zero or one existential risk. Um, so they pose distinctive challenges um, uh, which are interesting to think about and one can come at it at different angles. One can think uh, like an initial study, uh, initial finding from this, this field of existential risk studies is that it looks like all the really big 
existential risks, um, at least if we're thinking about the time scale of a century or so, are uh, risks that arise in some way from human activity rather than from nature. It's, it's easy to see that, that we've survived risks from nature for 100,000 years, the firestorms, earthquakes, volcano eruptions, and asteroids. So probably they won't do us in in the next 100, but we will in this century introduce entirely new um, phenomena into the world uh, that, that may pose significant existential risks. Um, one way to, to make uh, a, a, a similar point, but in a, in a different sort of frame, is to think of in terms of this metaphor of a giant urn, an urn of possible inventions, an urn of possible ideas. Um, and, and throughout history, we have, as a species and as individuals, been reaching into this urn and uh, picking out one ball after another, making different discoveries, introducing new technologies. Uh, and we can now look back uh, on, on the track record of all this inventing, and we can see that it is good. Uh, the reason why we are now inhabiting this modern human condition, where we have, where we earn more than subsistence wages, is, is fundamentally largely because of technological progress. Um, so most technologies have been good. Some, some have been mixed bags, like have had some bad effects, but some beneficial effects. Uh, it's actually not that easy to think of a technology that has been on balance bad, that we would have been better off without. Uh, but one can think of some plausible candidates for this, like maybe chemical weapons. Um, you could argue the case that nuclear weapons we would have been better off without, like certain torture instruments. Um, what we haven't seen yet is any um, black ball, like an invention such that it invariably um, spells the uh, destruction of the civilization uh, that makes it. Um, we haven't pulled out such a ball from this urn. What, what could such a thing um, look like? Well, we can um, perhaps get some sense of what this kind of possibility would look like if we run a counterfactual. So a little over half a century ago, we discovered um, how to release the energy of the atom to produce nuclear weapons. And so it turns out that in order to do this, um, you need um, highly fissile materials which are hard to come by. So it's hard to get highly enriched uranium or plutonium, and therefore it's hard to make nuclear weapons. You need large facilities that are expensive, take a lot of energy, a big footprint. So only a few states can really do this. And that was fortunate. Uh, suppose it had turned out to be otherwise, that uh, there had been some way to, to create a nuclear weapon by some simple method. Uh, suppose you could could do it by baking sand in the microwave oven or something like that. Um, where would civilization be now? Well, so we know that it's physically impossible to make a nuclear weapon by baking sand in the microwave oven, but before we had done the relevant physics, <coughs> before we had actually done um, the atomic physics and particle physics, how could we possibly have known whether it would be easy or hard? So we reached into the urn, we pulled out the ball, and maybe uh, nuclear energy turned out to be one of these gray balls, uh, like big dangerous but survivable. But it could have turned out it had been a black ball. And, and in that case, probably that would have been the end of, 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 of human uh, technological civilization. Because if it became easy enough to like, destroy a city, then cities would get destroyed at to a high rate for, for that to be sustainable. Maybe uh, human society would be knocked back to some earlier um, like Bronze Age stage, and when it clawed its way up again, it would again get the ability to make microwave ovens and to build nuclear bombs, and the cycle might repeat. We, we have a great ability to uh, invent things, but we don't have a great ability to uninvent things. So once we have pulled the ball out, we can't put it back in. 
Um, so, so far we've just been fortunate, perhaps, that we haven't uh, encountered a black ball. And we don't know for sure whether the urn contains a black ball, but if it does, it looks like we're continuing to pull them out one after another. Eventually we will get it, and then that would be the end of it. Uh, so we can look more uh, concretely at some possible technologies on the horizon that, that could possibly constitute uh, such a black ball. I will talk um, uh, a little bit more about AI um, in a minute, but there are others as well. Synthetic biology like, has obviously uh, a wide range of very beneficial applications one can envisage. Um, um, which is one reason for being confident that we will go forward with it and, and then face whatever dangers there might be. Uh, molecular nanotechnology, uh, like uh, not, not the kind of nanotech we have today, but, but if, if and when we get to the kind of nanotechnology like people like Eric Drexler have described, uh, then that could be a, very, a source <laughs> of great power. Um, various technologies that might make it easier to form and maintain uh, totalitarian uh, structures. Um, I'm thinking maybe advances in surveillance technology or, or ways that makes it easier to uh, manipulate and control um, desires through psychological or neurological techniques. Um, remember that an existential risk is not only one that could uh, spell extinction, but also one that could um, permanently and drastically destroy our future. For example, by locking ourselves into some radically suboptimal state. Again, this, this could have uh, a lot of beneficial applications as well, but it does seem that it has a potential downside. Um, and I don't think that um, the state um, in political science is advanced enough to really tell us what would happen if, if it became a lot easier for a small group um, to run a big country with, without opposition. We, we know that technologies in the past have changed the kinds of political structures you get uh, with, with agriculture, with writing, um, with gunpowder. Like this is a big ramifications on, on the kinds of political systems we have, so perhaps something like that could happen again. Human modification and geoengineering, and then a lot of unknowns there, I think, should be added. If we think about these uh, like existential risks that might now might seem large to us over the coming century or so, then we can note that they're all discovered or conceptualized only in the last few decades. So if somebody had asked 100 years ago what would have been the biggest existential risks, then um, perhaps none of the items on this list would have uh, been mentioned. Maybe, maybe they would have worried some about totalitarianism, but they certainly wouldn't have worried about AI uh, or nanotechnology before they had even computers. Um, so if you combine this kind of um, picture uh, w with a lens of existential risk as like help us in helping us to focus on, on some really important critical feature, and with, with this other idea that there is a kind of weak technological determinism at play here, which I think is quite plausible. Um, we get some interesting results. So what do I mean by technological determinism? Well, I don't mean that every detail about how technology goes is out of human control. Uh, what I mean is that if there is some um, fairly uh, general purpose technology that has a lot of uh, positive uses and that could be uh, used among other things to make money or to heal people or to increase military strength, then it's likely that in the fullness of time that technology will get developed provided that s science and technology continues. Um, one can think about it a little bit like um, if there is a big box uh, that's initially empty and, and then we start pouring sand into the box. Um, this corresponds to which kinds of scientific areas we prioritize where we fund research. Uh, so where you pour the sand will then influence where the sand piles up in the box. 
but over time, if you just keep pouring in sand, then eventually the whole box will fill up uh, independently of where you sort of start to pouring it. It will spill over. So I think a, a similar weak form of uh, technological determinism is, is plausible. Um, so that means that perhaps the right question to ask with regard to some hypothetical technology is not, would we be better off with this technology or without it? Because it might be that that's just um, a fact over which we have no real influence. We will get it eventually. Um, and that we need some other way to think about, um, um, about these kinds of things. So one attitude one could have in, in light of this is, is uh, uh, the one I think best expressed by this, some, some commenter on the, some blog uh, under the, um, the, the, the name of Washbash. He said, I instinctively think go faster. Uh, not because I think this is better for the world. Why should I care about the world when I'm dead and gone? I want it to go fast, damn it. Because this increases the chances that I have of experiencing a more technologically advanced future. So is Washbash right or wrong? Well, we have to be clear here about what the question is that we're asking. If the question we're asking is, what would be best for me um, from an egoistic point of view, then I think that Washbash quite uh, plausibly is right, that we would have reason to hope for faster technological um, development. The default is that we all die um, from old age in just a few decades from now. Um, and uh, the only way to even have a chance of escaping that, if we're thinking about this cosmic uh, endowment that humanity has and like astronomical lifetimes or uploading into computers, something like that, the only way that that could possibly happen is if there were rapid technological progress and then some massive breakthrough that we don't think looks very imminent happen somehow, like AI or a cure for aging or some other like radical shakeup. It's the only way that that could happen. So if that's what you're holding your hope for, then you would want maximum progress just to sort of stir things up as much as possible to, to avoid the default fate of just kind of rotting away and dying from old age or uh, prematurely from some other disease. Uh, even if you don't uh, wish for that, uh, you just want faster technological progress in order to maybe uh, inhabit a wealthier future with, with uh, cooler gadgets, uh, which we'll see more of with faster progress. Um, but if instead we're asking a different question, not what's best for me, but what would be best uh, from an impersonal point of view, then I think um, uh, the attitude um, would be different. Uh, we might want to then embrace something like what I call the principle of differential technological development, which states that we should retard the development of dangerous and harmful technologies, especially ones that raise the level of existential risk, and accelerate the development of beneficial technologies, especially those that reduce the existential risks posed by nature or by other technologies. So the idea here is that even if we have this um, weak technological determinism, it doesn't mean that what we do is irrelevant. We might not be able to permanently prevent some possible technology from coming into existence, but we can make a difference to when it comes into existence. If you thought we could have no influence on when a technology comes into existence, then we should presumably stop funding technological research altogether because it would just be a waste of money. If, if technology development were going to happen exactly in the same way, whether we poured money on it or not, we might as well save the cash. So presumably, we agree that it's possible to maybe make some technology available a few months earlier than it otherwise would, or a few months later, depending on how much we prioritize that research area. And then this principle of differential technological developments suggests that instead of just trying to 
focus on, on the possible benefits we could get from different technologies. We should try to um, target our efforts in technology to maximize the difference between the existential risk reducing technologies and the existential risk increasing ones. Um, so that will be relevant when we are thinking about artificial intelligence in particular and super intelligence more generally. Um, there are kind of two possible ways we could get to some form of super intelligence. We could imagine enhancements of biological intelligence. This has happened in the past over evolutionary timescales, big leaps uh, in the sophistication of information processing, most recently with the emergence of the human species. But there is no reason um, to believe that we have hit the limits um, of what is possible with biological processing. Uh, far from being the, uh, the smartest possible biological technological species, I think we are uh, probably the stupidest possible uh, biological species capable of technological civilization. Um, it, it's more that we started from a low level of intelligence and then gradually grew smarter and once we reached a sufficient level of intelligence to do technology, we did it. And so that's the level at which we kind of are now. The lowest level of biological intelligence that is sufficient for unleashing a technological civilization. But uh, there's no reason to think that we've anywhere close to limit. Um, but the timescales there seem to be very slow, at least if we leave things to nature. And, and they could go in the other direction as well, of course. Um, the other path is through uh, machine intelligence. Uh, machines right now are far inferior to us in general intelligence, but they are improving at a more rapid clip, perhaps. So we can, we can ask about which of these will, will get there first. And more specifically, one can consider different ways of trying to create um, superintelligence. Um, I'll talk a little bit about biological enhancement in just a second. Networks and organizations is also important. This is the idea that in addition to trying to enhance the uh, performance of individual brains, we can also try to improve humanity's epistemic performance by getting better at aggregating information and having better institutions for stimulating collaborative efforts uh, in science and technology and having more of us. Um, but I won't talk more, I won't talk really much about sort of this kind of collective um, form of superintelligence today. Um, then there are these hybrid approaches, the idea that you would somehow create something that has the best features of machine and man by like implanting chips in the brain. And uh, personally, I think this cyborg path is not really very promising at all uh, because it's going to be very difficult to significantly enhance the capabilities of a normal, healthy um, uh, human being by implanting stuff. Uh, you could get almost all the benefits of, of, uh, that you could have from a brain implant by having sort of the computer outside of yourself. And so I get asked, like, wouldn't it be great to just be able to access Google by, by just thinking about it? And, but I mean, I can already access Google. We have these wonderful uh, interfaces already called like eyeballs. Um, that can project 100 million bits uh, straight into the brain per second um, with dedicated neural machinery to interpret this sensory information. Um, it's really hard to do much better than that. Uh, and and, and it, at the end, I mean, it's not as if the rate at which we can pump sensory information into the brain is the bottleneck. The, the bottleneck is our uh, ability to, to interpret and make sense of that information. So, so the first thing you do with uh, these 100 million bits is to throw almost all of it away and you try to extract higher level features to then 
make a representation of the visual world. Um, so I think for some people with disabilities, it can be uh, like promising perhaps, but, but it's hard to see how it would significantly enhance the performance of healthy thought. Um, and then we have machine intelligence, which I'll also come back to in a second. But just to um, um, put in a little bit more detail about the biological cognitive enhancement path, I think that the place where that will first become technologically feasible is likely uh, through embryo selection in the context of in vitro fertilization. Um, a, a couple generally produces some number of embryos, maybe eight or ten embryos, and the doctor then chooses one of those to implant. And today that can be done um, only with some simple criteria. So if uh, an embryo looks kind of abnormal and strange, you wouldn't select that. You can test for various monogenic uh, disorders. You can't currently uh, select for any interesting complex behavioral trait. But the price of gene sequencing is now falling very rapidly. <coughs> and it is becoming possible to run these really large-scale studies with hundreds of thousands of subjects, and soon with millions of subjects, that will be necessary to determine uh, the genetic architecture um, of the uh, variants that we see in, in human intelligence, more specifically the additive component of the variants of human intelligence. Um, and so once we have that data, then you would no, need no other new technology. You could just use that data to, to do this discrimination if you wanted. Um, so, so there are various kind of ethical issues around this, which I will not talk about today, not because I don't recognize that they are there, but I just want to first focus on like, what would actually be technologically feasible. Um, so um, there is then another technology that would vastly potentiate this simple, straightforward embryo selection. Um, but it would require something new. This is um, the idea of iterated embryo selection. I wrote a paper uh, last year with Carl Schulman where we tried to analyze this scenario. So here you would do embryo selection, but you would have this additional technology uh, of being able to extract stem cells from an embryo and then use those um, to produce new uh, sperm and ovum um, that you could combine into new embryos so that you could, in effect, collapse the human generation cycle from 20 years or 30 years down to um, maybe uh, a month or two. Uh, and instead of facing the problem as like the old uh, eugenics movement advocates did of trying to persuade some large group of people to change their breeding patterns and keep doing that for a few hundred years, um, you would now have a situation where you could, instead of having centuries, you would be doing this within like a year or so, and instead of changing people's uh, mate choices, you would just have a petri dish. Uh, so the feasibility would increase rapidly. Um, and so the missing technology here is uh, the ability to, to grow um, 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 gametes from embryonic stem cells. Now, this has been done in mice, so it's not a science fiction technology, but it has not yet been perfected to be suitable for use in humans. So there is some uncertainty as to how long that will take. But if you had that, then uh, you could do multiple generations of embryo selection within short timescales. And we did some calculations of the uh, amount of selective power that you could get with different assumptions here. So if you imagine just producing two embryos and you select the one that looks like it has the highest disposition uh, towards some trait like intelligence, you could select for all kinds of other things as well, like obedience to authority or health or whatever. But we're focusing on cognition here. 
if you select the best of one in two, you might get something like four IQ points on average. If you select one in 10, you get somewhat more. And if you could select one in 100 or one in 1,000, you get a little bit more. But you see that there is a rapidly diminishing returns here. So just increasing the size of the pool of embryos that you select from gives you less and less. So it's hard to scale that. By contrast, if you have this iterated embryo selection going, then uh, the total number of embryos that would be involved could be much less, and you would still have a much bigger effect. So by having five generations of selecting the best of one in 10 for each generation for five generations, where one generation might be two months, uh, you might get as much as 65 IQ points. And with 10 generations of one in 10 selection, that is involving 100 embryos in total, you might get a, a, a genotype that would be expected to produce a phenotype beyond what you've seen uh, throughout human history. Like there might just not have been any, um, any person uh, in all of human history with that kind of propensity for intelligence, like some sort of super von Neumann type of entity. Um, so already with this, it looks like some kind of weak, um, some kind of weak uh, form of super intelligence uh, would be feasible. And it might be that there will be other genetic engineering approaches that, that will kind of overtake this uh, selection approach. This is still quite wasteful. You're producing a lot of things and then selecting one. It might be that with new techniques like uh, CRISPR and other forms of genetic engineering, if they could be made precise enough, uh, you could get the ability to design a genome to specification and you could then get even more. So there are some reasons for thinking that not only are we far from the ultimate limits of biological uh, uh, in information processing, but that we might within the foreseeable future um, foreseeable here meaning we could maybe start doing this in 10-15 years and have much more advanced capabilities within a few decades that we could reach some kind of weak superintelligence. Um, so this then is a kind of alternative to machine intelligence and I, I sometimes um, am presented with a suggestion that if there really are these big uh, risks related to machines becoming smarter than humans as, as I argue in the book that maybe this is a reason then for uh, pursuing biological cognitive enhancement so that we could keep one step ahead of the machines. I think that's fundamentally um, misguided and that um, uh, pursuing the biological cognitive enhancement path will not um, delay but will instead hasten the, the day when we are overtaken by machine intel intelligence uh, because with um, smarter humans, you will have smarter uh, computer scientists doing the AI research and they, they will meet with success sooner uh, than, than we would do if we were approaching this with current capabilities. So um, cognitive uh, enhancement, I think, will, will speed our approach to the time when machines overtake us. That might nevertheless be good reasons to pursue uh, cognitive enhancement. And I think on balance there is, um, basically because we would want whichever generation it is that eventually creates superintelligence to be as competent as possible. Um, but it would not be that we would keep ahead of the machines. It would be that we would be more skilled when we are creating them. That, that would be the basic reason for, for favoring cognitive enhancement. But either way, we will at some point, I think, face the um, challenge of machine intelligence. <coughs> when, um, when, when most people think about AI, like they, they, there are various kind of milestones that, that um, that spring to mind if there are occasions where, where there is some visible achievement in the field of artificial intelligence that's dramatic enough to kind of make a blip on, on the radar of public awareness. Um, the uh, defeat of Kasparov by 
Deep Blue was, was one of those. Um, and uh, <coughs> self-driving cars, uh, sort of legged locomotion robotics, and, and most recently, perhaps, um, Watson's uh, uh, trouncing of the, uh, the human uh, all-time Jeopardy champions. This is a sort of trivia quiz show. Um, are, are, are these occasions where we're machines I made some big advance, and, and, and suddenly it looks like maybe AI is, is much closer than, than it uh, looked before. But, but these are not necessarily very good metrics if one really wants to have some sense for how much the field is moving forward. Be, uh, underneath the hood, sort of driving these uh, advances are a number of uh, techniques in, in, in AI and machine learning that, 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 that have driven the progress we see. And, and a lot of the... Um, a lot of the, the actual uses of the AI is, are kind of more or less hidden from you. There is like uh, a saying among AI researchers that as soon as something actually works, it's no longer called AI. It's kind of frustrating. Um, but a lot of the, we, we just think of it as software, like boring software. Um, uh, and there is a tendency for the goalpost to move. Uh, it used to be the case that chess was regarded as sort of the epitome of human intellection. This, this, deep game that required deep strategic thinking and planning and creative problem solving that some people thought would be forever beyond uh, the, the reach of machines. But once they did it, then we kind of downgraded chess. It no longer seems like it's just like computation. What's the big deal? And, and so there is this sense of moving goalposts. But uh, there have been a number of these uh, techniques that have been discovered, most of them in, in the last 60 years or so, uh, I mean, since we got computers, uh, a, a few key developments done before that, like logic. Um, and uh, concomitantly with that, um, also just the, the, the growth of hardware power uh, has been fueling these advances. And if we look at particular domains uh, where it's possible to measure these things, uh, like chess is one of them, it seems that roughly half of the uh, progress in, in chess computing that we've seen uh, is attributable to mm, hardware getting better, and, and roughly half of it is attributable to our algorithms getting better and, and, and databases. And um, as, as a rough rule of thumb, that seems to hold for a, a few different uh, domains. Uh, the exact proportions might vary somewhat, but, but certainly both hardware and algorithmic improvements have, have been very important drivers of progress. Um, so one possible uh, a path towards machine intelligence would be that we uh, discover some more of these basic techniques. Uh, enough so as to gain the ability then to engineer, to craft a synthetic artificial intelligence. And we don't know how many um, of these additional discoveries would be needed. I mean, we certainly know we can't do it today. So um, at least one more of these, probably several more at the minimum would be needed. But whether we need sort of an extra five like great new ideas uh, in, uh, in in this field, or whether we need 20, that's very difficult to, to estimate. So we just need a broad probability distribution over how many remaining discoveries uh, would we require. Um, uh, an, an alternative approach to machine intelligence is to try to crib from nature. Uh, so we know there already is a general intelligence system, the human brain, and we can study it and try to decipher how it works. Uh, see what computational architectures are employed in the human brain, what learning algorithms, and then use similar things in a computer. Um, and this can come in various degrees. Uh, on, on one hand, you would just draw some loose inspiration. 
from nature. You see that, well, the brain is a neural network, so maybe we should explore neural network-like structures. Uh, the brain uses reinforcement learning algorithms, so maybe we should explore reinforcement learning algorithms. But where there is no particular attempt to uh, get the details right, to be biological or realistic. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is whole brain emulation, um, where you would literally try to copy uh, a mind uh, without necessarily understanding how it works. So the idea there is that you would take a particular human brain, uh, freeze it or vitrify it, and then slice it up into thin slices. You would feed those slices through uh, an array of powerful microscopes to image them um, uh, at sufficiently high resolution. Uh, then you would create a stack of these images and use automated image recognition software uh, to extract the three-dimensional connectivity matrix. And that was originally implemented in the biological uh, neuropil of, of the cortex and now exists as a data structure. Um, combining that with computational models um, from computational neuroscience of how different neuron types work and then running this whole thing on a sufficiently powerful computer. Um, this is something that we are very far from being able to do today. So by contrast with this, where it's hard to, we, we can't really be 100% certain that no clever person somewhere in a garage somewhere couldn't like find the great breakthrough tomorrow. It looks low probability, but we can't really rule it out. Um, with this, we can kind of be sure that it can't happen in, in the near future, uh, because it would require some very powerful enabling technologies that, that we don't yet have. Um, on the other hand, uh, the whole brain emulation approach would not require any great theoretical breakthrough, um, any deep conceptual revolution. It, uh, it would only require um, incremental advances in a number of technology areas, uh, microscopy, uh, automated image processing. Uh, we already have good neurocomputational models of, of, of many types of neuron. We would need to expand that library. So there's maybe a higher degree of confidence that we could eventually get to the goal by, by kind of studying the human brain uh, or copying it. Uh, but it might be that we will get there faster through this purely synthetic approach. Um, these pictures here kind of represent the, the state of the art. Uh, up on the uh, left there, we have an electron micrograph of, of a slice of neur neural tissue where you can see, uh, if you look carefully, cross-sections of um, uh, axons and synapses. Um, so this is the kind of resolution you would need. You would need some more information, probably, than is in this, um, this kind of picture. We already have microscopes with sufficient resolution. I mean, we can see individual atoms if we want to, right? Uh, it's just that if you wanted to image uh, an object the size of the human brain at atomic resolution, it would take um, forever uh, to do that. So, so you need like advances in high throughput microscopy and so forth. This is a block. It's just what you get if you put a lot of those pictures together. And this is the result of image recognition software operating on this kind of information. And you can see that it has extracted the connections between the different neurons there. But the result is not really good enough. There, it often makes errors in, in drawing out these connections. Uh, and uh, it doesn't tell us which connections are excitator or inhibitory or what the strength of the connections are. Um, we have a simple model organism, C. elegans, which has exactly 302 neurons. Uh, and uh, we have the entire connectivity matrix uh, mapped out for C. elegans, but we still can't really emulate its behavior because we still lack some of this information about the nature of their connections. So C. elegans, 302 neurons. The human brain, 80 billion neurons. There are some ways to go there. Um, 
but it might be that um, once you reach a sufficient level of capability, the last bit is just scaling it. Uh, uh, um, but it's a kind of technology where you would expect to, to get some fair amount of advance warning. Um, uh, you, you might be able to succeed with a mouse before you succeeded with like a chimp brain and with a chimp brain before a, a human brain. And, and, and you would probably need a large industrial scale facility to do with this. Uh, um, it, it would be very surprising if this could happen in, in less than several decades and it might take longer. Uh, whereas with the uh, synthetic AI, there is you know, a wider probability distribution. Um, so I'm not going to go into this, but yes, as I suggested, um, AI is used, machine learning is used in many different sectors of the economy. And recently there have been a kind of um, a, 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 a big wave of enthusiasm washing over this field with a number of, sort of high profile acquisitions. Um, here in, in Britain, maybe the, what was the world's leading AI company before DeepMind that we were doing work with were bought up by Google um, uh, earlier this year, um, or was it last, last year, late last year or early this year? Uh, and, and there's some competition for, for talent in this field. So this is one reason perhaps to think that like, there's things are moving uh, right now. Um, on the other hand, in the history of AI, we can look back and we've seen that there have been about two of these sort of hype waves before, where there was great enthusiasm and big expectations and followed by disappointment. So this is maybe the third great wave of enthusiasm and you know, maybe, maybe this will be it or maybe it will be followed by disappointment and maybe by another wave of enthusiasm and disappointment. We don't know how many of these waves will occur before we finally actually get there. Um, there are some particular domains which we can uh, identify where, where AIs are already far ahead of humans, like game AI uh, in many uh, games are in this category, but, but they're still far, far beneath us in, in terms of common sense, um, general learning ability, uh, creative problem solving, uh, and many other things that are essential. Um, how, how far away are we from, uh, from human level machine intelligence? We, we did a survey of some of the world's leading AI experts um, last year and uh, this is what we found. One of the questions was, by what year do you think there is a 50% probability um, that we will have human level machine intelligence? Um, and you can see the median answer to that was 2050 or 2040, depending on precisely which expert community we asked. Uh, this uh, to me seems somewhat reasonable. Uh, I think there's a big uncertainty on both sides of those, those uh, years, like it could happen much sooner um, or it could take much, much longer as well. Um, we also asked by what year do you think there's a 90% probability that we will have human level machine intelligence. Um, th this is conditional on there being no collapse of human civilization. Um, uh, and, and here I would disagree. I think it's um, over um, optimistic to assume that there's a or pessimistic, depending on how you look at it. I, I don't think uh, there's a 90% probability that we will have human-level AI by 2070. Uh, we just can't have that level of confidence in, in, in these technology forecasts. Uh, so that, that seems overconfident. Um, we also asked um, how long um, you think it will take, uh, if and when we do reach human-level machine intelligence, until we get superintelligence. And uh, um, the... the, the the, the median probabilities uh, assigned to this was that there was maybe a 5 or 10% probability that would happen within two years after human level machine intelligence. So there I, I disagree. I think that, 
I'm quite agnostic as to when we will have human-level machine intelligence. I just don't think we have information that enables us to have a very sort of peaked probability distribution for that. However, I do think that if and when we do reach that point, there is a fairly high probability that we will uh, shortly thereafter have superintelligence. Uh, certainly more than 5 or 10 percent probability. And um, I, I don't really have time to sort of explain in detail why I think that, but one intuition um, is this, that although we might naively um, th think of human intelligence as, as this like wide range from like, the village idiot at one end and Einstein at the other and that there is like a huge difference. Um, I, I think that um, a better uh, picture of, of the situation is, is like the one um, here on this slide where right now we have AI that's the equivalent of, well you can't really make these exact mappings but if we had to maybe we could say current AI is on the level of, of a bug or a bee or something like that. Uh, maybe if we keep working hard in this field, we will eventually get to like mouse level uh, AI. And then maybe if we keep working hard for a long time after that, we'll get like up to chimp level. And then if we keep working hard for a long time after that, eventually maybe we get up to the village idiot level. But then I think that we'll just swoop right past Einstein. Um, if you think about um, Einstein and village idiot, from a basic um, neurological perspective, they are basically identical. I mean, they have the same brain. You can hardly see any difference. Roughly the same number of neurons, same number of connections, the same speed of um, uh, information processing in each neuron. Um, and so, um, in terms of absolute difficulty, it, it, there's no reason to think that it would be much harder to, to make an Einstein-level AI than, than a village idiot AI. And then, beyond that, something that is uh, like far greater than Einstein. Um, uh, so there's a lot more to be said about that, but here I just want to make this point that it's important to distinguish these two questions. The question about how far are we from AI now, uh, and the question of if and when we do get to that point, what does the future then look like? How quick will this transition be? How steep will the transition be from, from human level to superintelligence? Um, and um, Um, this second question is, is, is significant um, in at least two ways. Um, so if we have a, um, a fast takeoff scenario where, where the takeoff here is on the scale of minutes or hours or days, some short period of time, then uh, it's clear that whatever safety mechanisms that we uh, want to rely on will have to be developed before the AI is created. There's just no time, like, once the AI is starting to do some dangerous things, to try to develop a whole new safety system if you have, like, 60 minutes to do it. So, uh, in a fast takeoff scenario, the control problem has to be completely solved in advance. And you don't just have to rely on the mechanism being set up correctly so that once it goes off, it, it will uh, unfold in a desirable direction. If, if we were talking instead of a slow takeoff scenario where you get to the human level, but then it will take decades or centuries to sort of gradually claw our way up from there to genuine superintelligence, then you could imagine that we would have time to develop global institutions to deal with this, to institute new PhD programs, to train people in like AI controlled technology, um, to see what works, uh, and if something doesn't work, we try something different. So one way in which um, the steepness of the takeoff is relevant 
um, task today is, is uh, in terms of its bearing on the question of how much work will we need to have done in advance. And um, another um, way in which it is relevant is that um, if you have a fast takeoff scenario, then uh, you're going to end up with a world where uh, you're much more likely to have a singleton. That is a world order where at the highest level of decision-making there is only one effective decision-making agency. Um, so think about it like this. Uh, you have different uh, companies competing or different countries on some technology product, whether it's to launch some new kind of software or develop some new kind of weapons technology. And sometimes there are races to develop the technology first. And sometimes those races are quite close. But um, by close, we here mean that the leader might be like a few months or a few years uh, ahead of the follower. Um, this is what we see with like nuclear weapons, ICBMs, and like a lot of other technologies. Uh, two companies being close doesn't mean that one company is likely to succeed five minutes ahead of the others. There's going to be some reasonable like human timescale difference between the leader and the closest followers. So if you have a takeoff that is over in the course of hours or days, then uh, you're likely to have a situation where the leader will have started the takeoff and completed it uh, before the follower, the closest follower, has even started it. And so you then have a world where there is a mature superintelligence and no intellectual peer, no other system that is even near it in cognitive ability. And, and this world that is then uh, contains this single superintelligence would be one, I think, likely to result in a singleton. This, 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 this first superintelligence would be extremely powerful, uh, able to develop all other kinds of technologies that we could have developed over tens of thousands of years, but do them very quickly on digital timescales reach technological maturity and then shape the future according to its desires. Uh, so either the AI itself or the product that controls it would then end up maybe in a position to just shape the future according to their preferences. Um, by contrast, in, in slow takeoff scenarios, you're more likely to end up with a situation of economic competition um, or a situation in which evolutionary dynamics uh, operate on a population of digital minds. You will still end up with, with minds that are super intelligent, but at no point will any one of them be so far ahead of all the others that it can just lay down the law. Instead, you'll have a population of gradually increasing capabilities. And the concerns in that type of multipolar scenario look very different uh, from the ones in, in the singleton scenarios. Not necessarily less serious, uh, but quite different. Um, so I'm aware of the time ticking here, and so I'm going to wrap up. So what I've said so far is really just setting the stage. Um, uh, the, 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 the great bulk of the book is, is really about what happens if one has this picture. Um, how could you try to control uh, the outcome of an intelligence explosion? How could you try to engineer artificial agents so that they would behave in some predictable and desirable way as they grow into superintelligences? Um, what could we say about what uh, a superintelligence would want to do? Uh, can we analyze that at all? And we can say some interesting things about that. Um, and then, most importantly, um, this is the last couple of chapters, what does all of this mean for what we should be doing today? Like, how can we, if, if, if we think that this is the kind of end game, um, although we're very unsure about the timescales for that, um, how should that affect what we want to do now, insofar as our desire is to do what would be best from an impersonal view, to do the altruistically optimal thing? which turns out to be a highly non-trivial question. But um, I'm very eager to have a little uh, discussion and Q&A, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Um, 
So Nick is going to take your questions now. So if you could uh, raise your hand if you have a question and Nick will point me in the right direction and I shall bring the microphone over to you. Please be aware that we're also filming and live webcasting the Q&A as well. So just be aware of that when you ask your question. Thank you very much for the extraordinary exposition. I'm just curious why on this graph, the map, uh, the line flattens off once superintelligence has been <coughs> achieved. Yeah, so the idea is that there are ultimate physical limits to information processing, which we know that there are. Um, a given amount of matter in a given amount of space can only contain so many bits and can only process them at such a rate. So there's some ultimate limit beyond which you can't make further progress in intensively. That is by changing the configuration of the system. At that point, the only way to further expand your capabilities is by acquiring more resources, physical resources. You need more matter to build more processors. Uh, and that can maybe in the short term happen at a very rapid clip, but in the longer term, it's limited to a polynomial rate in that we have the speed of light limiting the rate at which um, astrophysical resources can be acquired. So the, the, the long-run uh, development of this kind of system is that you're growing at some significant fraction of the speed of light in all directions and gobbling up more planets and galaxies as you go along. Uh, but that will then create a growth rate that is uh, 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 polynomial rather than exponential. So it, it will look like a slowing down compared to the exponential phase. Or, uh, there's no reason to think this will be exponential, actually. I mean, it just looks steep. There, there's this kind of tendency uh, to call everything exponential uh, in this field, uh, by which people really only mean fast. Um, I, I, it would be better off, uh, I think, reducing, uh, uh, calling everything exponential, and that's fast. Yes, uh, yes and, and then we'll try something further back after that. Yeah, thank you for an uh, amazing uh, talk. Um, you had a slide earlier where you showed people's predictions or several organizations, I guess, predictions of when human-like ma machine intelligence uh, would be achieved. I was wondering if you could unpack it a little bit. It would be interesting to know at present um, who is more optimistic, who is more pessimistic, and in your opinion, why, as in technologists versus scholars versus uh, investors in AI? I was just not sure what the acronyms on the left-hand side were standing for. Yeah, uh, well, so I should also say these are uh, small sample studies. So uh, in addition to actually just, in the end, being the subjective judgments, which obviously makes them unreliable guides to the future, the survey methodology itself is fairly weak. I mean, we did the best with the resources we have, but we don't, better studies could be done. Um, there are no very drastic differences here. Uh, these are, uh, this is some kind of um, philosophy and theory of AI scholarly community, more European-based, focusing on cognitive systems. And AGI are some people who are specifically working on AGI, but not very, not very mainstream or prominent. Uh, the EETN, uh, that was uh, some, some other conference, I uh, forget exactly what it is. The top 100 were uh, only a subset of those responded, maybe like 25% or something like that. These were identified by publication uh, metrics, so the, the, the most distinguished people in AI. Uh, and combined, it's just all of the above. So I think the two most significant rows are top 100 or combined. Um, so uh, I don't think we had enough uh, of a sample to reliably tell different subpopulations apart. My 
my gut feeling is that there seems to be maybe less uh, 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 boosterish uh, expectations in, in Europe than in America. Um, it's like American AI community seems to be more like we could do something cool here, whereas the European is more, oh, we don't understand embodiment. We need to think about what it means to have a body. Like, um, as some people in industry are very boosterish. Um, um, some people focusing more on cognitive systems, less boosterish. Uh, so there certainly are big differences, but I don't have any actual data on that. Um, let's, I think, you there in the back. Um, I uh, think it's a fantastic point when you say there may seem like a wide gap between the village idiot and Einstein for us, but when we take a wider perspective, actually, they're relatively close together. However, I partially agree and partially disagree when you say that this means when we reach the machine intelligence level of the village idiot, it's going to be very quick to get to Einstein. So your point was that Einstein and the village idiot use the same machinery, as it were. They have the same, similar brains. However, doesn't this suggest that um, because uh, the brains of the village idiot and Einstein uh, are capable of such different things, that there's something wider to the problem which we're not quite grasping yet? And, and do you think this is a an interesting way of looking at it in terms of how we might then solve the problem, the fact that we have very similar brains with uh, very different things that they can achieve. Yeah, I mean, so we can certainly infer things like just having 80 billion neurons connected somehow is not enough uh, to get Einstein level. I mean, we, we know it's not even sufficient to get village idiot. Um, that that the, the, the details matter there. But I think we have to get the details right to get even to the village idiot level. Um, like, you need, you need not just to have some kind of oscillating neural network that looks like it has sleep-wake cycles. You need to actually have something that specifically encodes information by learning and then generalizes from that. Um, um, so so, so that's, that's part of the motive. There is another, so, so to some extent, the, the, the argument for how confident we can be, and I'm, I'm not absolutely confident in this fast takeoff scenario. I just think I would assign it more than 50% probability. Uh, it also partly depends on, on the architecture, and which we still don't know which kind of architecture will first reach the human um, milestone. So the kinds of improvements that would be easy to make after that might depend on the architecture of the system that got there first. But there are certain kinds of improvements that uh, could be applied to any architecture. So if at this point in time uh, you still have, say, something like Moore's Law happening, which you might or might not have, then one way to improve the system is just by running it on faster hardware or on more processors. And you could get a kind of speed superintelligence from that. Um, and, and depending on like, how much you spend on the computers to create the human level performance, that might or might not be easy to scale the system further. Um, then there's another variable that comes in here. So to, to analyze the kind of the, the takeoff dynamics, on the one hand, there is the recalcitrance, which is what I've been focusing on. Like how difficult is it to improve the system? Um, the other factor is the optimization power, the amount of effort, quality-adjusted effort, going into improving it. Uh, and there, I think, we can have good reason to think that uh, it will certainly not uh, be reduced, but probably increase once we get human-level intelligence. I mean, certainly from an economic point of view, once you have a system that actually works at human level, there will be massive economic incentives to make further improvements. Uh, 
a human labor is 70% of the world economy. And once you have something that substitutes for human labor, any improvement you make immediately applies to 70% of the world economy. Um, so, um, and, and, and at some point above that level, let's see if we have this. Uh, um, so so this, this would kind of, the human incentives to start working hard in the system would apply already here and to some extent in the run-up. But once the AI becomes smart enough, then you have an additional factor. You have a feedback loop. So at that point, the AI itself will be contributing um, to its own development. And as it gets smarter and smarter, at some point, maybe the bulk of the optimization power being applied to the system is coming from the system itself. And from that point onwards, whenever the system is improved one step further, the amount of optimization power going into it is also increased. And, and you, you get this feedback loop, which adds to the kind of um, uh, the, the possibility of an explosive uh, outcome. Um, Thanks, Nick. Um, you know I'm a great supporter of your work. I think it's fantastic that you're doing it. Um, but what would you say to the skeptic who, who says, look, you're facing a kind of bootstrapping problem here. If you look around the world today in the billions of dollars that are spent on, say, a simple problem like cholesterol uh, or deriving stem cells to treat disease, and the huge number of brilliant minds that are put on they can't solve these kinds of problems, yet you're talking about cosmic endowment and these enormously complex problems, um, and there's a small group of you, you know, working away with a whiteboard. Um, why should we believe any of these projections, uh, given the sort of complexity of the issues that you've discussed? I mean, why, why should we, for example, believe in that graph that you've got in front of us there? Well, I think uh, in that kind of two possible answers to that. So one is just to look at the object level, at any particular paper like has to be validated on its own merit. So it can be critiqued or supported uh, like any other academic paper, and it should be. Um, on the meta level, though, I think the question is not so much can we be confident that we have it right, but rather what is uh, the um, alternative. So I think we are already making a lot of decisions that will have long-term uh, consequences. Sometimes we try deliberately to take those long-term consequences into account. For example, when we are concerned about global warming or something like that. It's, not, it's obviously not because what global warming will do within the next 10 or 20 years. Like, if it would never get worse than it is within the next 10 or 20 years, it wouldn't be worth worrying about it. I mean, the only possible reason for being concerned about it is that if we think, like, towards the end of the century, maybe things could be bad, or we're worried about the solvency of the pension system, or we are worried about whether we're spending enough on basic science uh, like that doesn't have any immediate payoffs over the next few years. Like it's because we have some views about what long term will tend to lead in desirable directions. Um, and, and a lot of these times there are assumptions uh, in, in these kinds of uh, uh, reasoning that, that they're not brought up to the surface and examined. And, and those assumptions might be very uh, naive and misguided. And so we're making all these um, um, efforts to try to affect the long-term future, but without ever having really to reflect it carefully about some of the basic assumptions underlying all, all those uh, endeavors. And so one of the things we want to do is to try to surface some of the assumptions, subject them to critical analysis, um, do as much of that analysis as we can on them, and, and then like present exactly what the reasoning is, and, and hopefully that will enable humanity to be more sophisticated uh, about how it thinks about its kind of macro strategy. I am, though, I should say, um, personally very uh, 
concerned about the, it could, the, the possibility that uh, it, we might just be sort of hopelessly in the dark about these things. Um, and uh, because it does look like we made a lot of progress on thinking about these things over, over the last 10, 15 years, um, and we're still making rapid progress, but that also suggests that there's a lot more progress that remains to be done. And if that progress that remains to be done will change our view as much as the progress that has been done in the last 10, 15 years has changed our views, then we must conclude that our current views are probably very misguided. Um, so I do think um, it is true that, that we are substantially in the dark and, and figuring out sort of wiser ways to behave in, in this, this epistemic predicament is, is a very high value activity that I'm hoping to devote some attention to. Um, maybe um, there is a gentleman next to the wall. In iterated uh, embryo selection, I can imagine uh, how you would uh, shorten the generations to one or two months. I d didn't understand how you would select for intelligence in those few cells or lumps of cells. Right, so the idea would be to take an, an embryo, I guess at the blastocyst stage, extract one cell, uh, sequence it, and, and then use that to form some estimate of the potential of the embryo for manifesting the trait value that you're interested in selecting for, um, which could be anything depending on who you are. And different cultures might have different attitudes to this, whether they permit the technology to go forward or not. Um, is, is, does that answer your question? or? So based on DNA uh, knowledge you have, you would estimate that this sequence is more intelligent, but you wouldn't know. Yeah, I mean, so, so we know, I mean, so there are a lot of these, like, tons of studies trying to figure out to what extent um, different psychological traits are, are heritable or not. Whether with, like, twin studies and more recently you have more sophisticated ways of doing this. Um, and, and, and particularly on cognition has been the focus of a lot of that research. So we have some range of estimates of how much of the variance uh, is due to environmental uh, differences, uh, which differs in different environments. So generally, less depends on the environment once the environment is pretty good, like in a kind of modern development. Uh, anyway, so, so th those are, are the kind of data that, that would go into that kind of analysis. Uh, yeah, do you want to? I've got one from Twitter. Ah, okay. As we're let's, doing. Let's hear what Twitter has to say. So, um, Jay Stockwood has asked, are the existential risks mentioned taken seriously by governments, and what are they being doing to create a controlled detonation? Um, are the existential risks taken seriously by governments? Generally speaking, uh, governments, like most people, uh, haven't tended to differentiate very sharply between existential risks and other global risks. Like, Something that could destroy our country and something that could destroy humanity is roughly equally bad, it seems, in the qualitative thinking uh, of most people on these issues. So hence there hasn't been much of a focus to specifically figure out which things are existential versus just could pose big problems for the global economy. Um, on the control problem, no, no, the governments have not done anything on that. And I think it would kind of be very premature for governments at this stage to try to do anything much on that. What is most needed right now, I believe, is uh, technical research uh, in theoretical computer science and mathematics, and some fractions of some other disciplines like philosophy can be helpful uh, uh, towards this control problem. Uh, 
um, so that by the time, whenever that is, um, that the solution is needed, we will have one at hand. Um, and, and it would be too early to try to get some kind of regulatory uh, intervention, I think, that this field. Um, uh, if we just take one more from the floor, um, and then Nick <laughs> is going to be signing books afterwards. So if you have any questions, um, y when you're getting your book signed, you can ask him then. Okay. And there is be a drinks reception that Nick is going to be present at as well. Okay. So just one more question from the floor. Um, okay, well maybe the, the lady there. And the Hold on. Talk to the principle of differential technology development, where we could retard the development of dangerous technology and accelerate the development of beneficial technology. My question was like, many times technology is developed, and it's much later. You you know, usually everybody develops with a for you know a, a beneficial view or a for-profit view. It's much later you realize that it has negative impacts. So how do we apply this principle? And the second question I wanted to ask is that uh, in the near future, do you see like governments and companies applying this principle? Um, well, so with the, the principle of differential technological development, it's not so much that it's clear that we should try to retard various technologies. It's more that, um, let's see, um, that this might furnish a criterion um, that we could then use to evaluate different post actions or interventions. So it might be that it's just very hard to make much difference by slowing down the technology. Like if you're a small group, like an individual philanthropist or like some guy, like you might just not have much uh, leverage over that. Uh, it might be a lot easier to accelerate. So for example, if there is the, um, the, the problem of making progress towards AI to actually make machines intelligent, and then the other problem of how to ensure that intelligent machines would be safe, it's really hard to m make much difference to how rapidly the world is moving forward to develop AI, it's a lot easier to make some substantial difference in how rapidly we are moving forward towards a solution to the control problem, just because there are so few people working on that. And um, a lot of people would oppose you if you tried to slow down AI, but nobody opposes you if you want to speed up progress in the control problem. So it just seems that applying the, this criterion to this case would suggest that you should focus on like, accelerating progress on the control problem. Um, now, notice that this is restricted to um, um, technologies that pose existential risks. So there are all kinds of other risks that all technologies face. Um, this is not meant to uh, be a very fruitful guide to all of those. Um, most of our, so one of these um, Im implicit assumptions I, I mentioned in, in my re reply to Julian that, that our thinking about global priorities rely on is the assumption that we want more innovation. I mean, the whole kind of university ethos is like, let's discover more things. We can make more progress in science and technology, and knowledge is good, and the more is better, and the faster we get it, the better it is. That, that itself is one of these assumptions that is less obvious once when you start to think about like, the overall strategic situation, and it might need qualifications. Uh, but if one were not concerned with existential risks, but just with the kind of pros and cons um, at more limited scales, then I mean, I, I would put it that overall the track record of technology has been immensely good on balance and, and that we would want faster growth just to reach more and more of these benefits sooner. Um, and, and it's really only when you're sort of thinking about the possibility that we fall off the cliff, I think, that, that you might want to have a more nuanced view or maybe certain technology areas are actually ones where we would prefer the, the key breakthroughs to come a little bit later. Okay, so uh, I guess we'll have to wrap up now, but I'll, I'll be happy to maybe answer some few more questions over the, uh, the, the book uh, signing process. Thank you.
And now join with me to thank Nick for his amazing talk.